Alright, so this morning I'm starting off a new teaching series, which is always very exciting, at least, if not for you, it is for me, a new teaching series uh, that's going to take us right through to the summer, it's going for 12 weeks, and we are going to be looking at the character of God, asking who is God, what's God like? If you've been around during our Big Objections series or come to many of them, uh, you'll have known that what we try to do is to use reason and logic to help people see that there the possibility that there might be a God. But there's only so far that reason and logic can take us. We might be able to convince a skeptic to be open to the idea that God exists through reasoning with them, but we, don't, we can't know anything else about that God. You see, for that, we need what the Bible calls revelation. We need God to reveal himself to us. In the same way that Harry Potter could not know anything about J.K. Rowling unless she revealed herself to him, or Hamlet could not know anything about William Shakespeare unless Shakespeare revealed himself to him in the fabric of the story. So it is that we cannot know anything about what God is like apart from him revealing it to us. Now we might be able to deduce that he's transcendent and ruler and impressive, powerful you know, being that he is, but we can't know much else beyond that with absolute certainty unless we get revelation. And the Bible claims to be revelation from God about God. And so that's why we spend a lot of time talking about the Bible and what the Bible says. And if you're new to church, the Bible is split into two bits, the old bit and the new bit, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're predominantly, for these 12 weeks, going to be spending our time in the Old Testament. And uh, And the Old Testament for a lot of people, whether Christian or not, is off limits because they've heard God does scary things in the Old Testament. He's he's unusual. Maybe he was having a bad day in the Old Testament. Uh, People have even gone so far as to say, oh, the God in the Old Testament is different from the God in the New Testament. He was angry and then Jesus came along and said, "Ah, I've, I've woken up. I'm not grumpy anymore. Be nice to each other. Some people think that so they avoid the Old Testament like a biblical plague. Uh, that isn't true, and hopefully through using the Old Testament, we're going to be showing that to you, that it isn't true. Uh, now, um, when I was uh, doing children's work, so you have to go with me in the children's work mood for just a, a smidgen of time. When I was doing children's work, to help some of the children engage with the Old Testament, we came up with a rap to help us see that the Old Testament is worth looking at. Uh, and it goes like this. The Old Testament might be old, and so we did this action of an old person. The Old Testament might be old, but that doesn't make it cold. It's full of God's truth, and that gives us living proof that God's a God of history, but also clothed in mystery, which we were particularly proud of at the time. It never really caught on. I don't really know why. And by the looks of your faces, I should not have done that in the first place. That's okay. Thank you. Thank you, Vic. I appreciate that. It worked well with the children. I don't know why we chose the word mystery. I think it's because it just rhymed with history. I don't really know what that means. God is a God of mystery. But we're going to be looking in the Old Testament at the book of Isaiah, uh, which Amy said you should open with the joke that Isaiah is the tallest man in the Bible because he stands next to people and says, Isaiah than you. But I'm, I said, I'm not going to do that joke. That's just a bad joke and it will just get a groan, much like what has happened. And yes, I am blaming you for that joke. There we go. <laughs> Now, it's important that we ask the question for ourselves, whether Christian or not, what is God like? John Calvin, a famous theologian from the 16th century, he said, uh, without a knowledge of God, there can be no true knowledge of self. Without a knowledge of God, there can be no true knowledge of self. Unless you know what your anchor point is, unless you know what the objective truth is outside of yourself that you've been born into, you can't really understand your place in the story. 
Unless you know what's going on in the, in the story of Lord of the Rings, you won't understand why two little hobbits are trying to travel across Middle Earth to get rid of this ring. Unless you know the bigger story or the bigger reality outside of yourself, you can't really understand yourself. That's what John Calvin said. I think he was right. So let me ask you this question today. Who gets to define who you are? Who gets to tell you who you are and, and what you should be like, how you should live? Uh, is it your biology? Just I'm, I'm this way wired, therefore this is how I behave. Um, I, I saw an advert on Google this week that was, um, love the skin you're in, which is basically saying, oh, you're more than the skin you're in. There's an immaterial part of you. You can be free as a free spirit. That's where you get your identity from, your desires, your impulses, your hiddenness, your, your spiritual part. Love that part of you. Where do you get, who gets to define you? Um, we're shaped, don't we, by our upbringing, by the, the educational system that we've been brought through and, and the country that we live in, our Britishness, if you're British, affects a large part of how you act and live and think. And uh, it's alarming at times just how much that shapes who we are. But the true self can only really be known in reference to who God is and what God's like, if indeed there is a God. So that's what we're looking at together. to save it you don't have so this is a read-only document you don't have permission to save this and it it got me thinking that's interesting uh with a document but with us as well are we read-only or do we allow things to shape us and to change the fabric of who we are i want to submit to us today that you are read-only and only god is allowed to decide who you are You may form an opinion of yourself by what you see in the mirror or what your friends tell you or gets done to you, but only God really gets to write over who you are and give you an identity. That's why it's important that we ask this question of who God is. So Isaiah is is the middle book in our Bibles, um, almost exactly in the middle. And um, Isaiah was a prophet. Uh, someone who heard from God about the current situation and what God was going to do through him and speak to him about in the future. This is a picture of Isaiah, Uh, perhaps not an accurate picture, but that's a picture from church history. And he lived during the 7th century BC during the reign of four kings. Uh, These are coins of those kings. There we go, um, which we'll read about them and we'll discover their names in a bit. Uh, And Isaiah as a book Uh, features lots of very well-known Bible verses, verses that we read out at at weddings or funerals or at Christmas that we have read to us every year. But it also has lots of obscure verses, which we've given ourselves the challenge of starting with today, which is exciting. Um, Isaiah um, lived in Judah in Israel. So here's a picture. This is is Europe in the Middle East. And in the red circle, that's where uh, Israel is. Next slide. And in the bottom of our picture there in the orange territory, if you like, that's where Isaiah So if you're new to the Bible and Bible geography, that's where we're writing to. That's where God's um, people lived geographically at the time. So that's where a lot of the Bible takes place. And uh, and prophets, what they largely did was they talked about the terrible present and how awful things were. And they talked about the hope that is to come. The terrible present and the hope that is to come. So our two tables are going to represent what's real and what's ideal in terms of the Bible. And if you've ever tried to read one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, um, well done. Uh, because they are quite hard going at times. And, and sometimes you can just read chapter after chapter after chapter of what sounds like God's just tirade against the sin of the earth. And it just is so depressing. I wasn't a Christian when I watched Pulp Fiction, but they quote Ezekiel 
33, the path of the righteous man. And he quotes this whole thing about sin and judgment and then shoot someone. And as a teenager, I was like, wow, the Bible's cool. And so I kind of learned that passage off by heart. I, just, I found a Bible somewhere and learned Ezekiel 34 so that I could quote Pulp Fiction. Uh, and, and that's a typical passage from a lot of what happens in the, in the prophets. Terrible prison, the ideal or the future hope. In many ways, if you're a parent, you are a prophet. Because you have children with an ideal in mind, don't you? And you think, one day we will have well-adjusted, well-rounded, mature adults who represent us, reflect our image in the world, and they're going to be a credit to us and a blessing to society. That's the ideal, that's the hope, but many of us live with the terrible present of nappies and sleepless nights, and, and that's, just, that's just, you know... That's just babies, and that's just where we're at. And that's, I always talk about babies because that's where I'm at at the moment, the terrible present. But we live in that because we think there's a future ideal that we're praying for and we're, we're believing for, right? Okay, fair enough. That was too far. So here we go. We're going to read from Isaiah. And uh, I've got a lot, of, a lot of Bible for you today, which is exciting because it means that uh, it makes it even harder for you to stay with me because there's a lot of obscure things that won't make much sense. But we're going to read through it um, because I want you to see that what we're talking about today isn't just my idea, isn't just kind of, oh, if I can get things up here and here or look exciting, we'll play a video at the end. And pff, no, I want us to read from the Bible so that we know this is what God says. Okay. So this is what Isaiah begins talking about the terrible present, things that are real right now. This is stuff that's trending right now in the nation of Israel, if you like. Okay, chapter one. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord, Yahweh, that is, has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He begins his, his prophetic book with this statement that God is a father to a children, to a nation. God is ruler and judge creator, but the way he relates to his people is as a father to children. And in the Old Testament, the son of God is Israel, the nation of Israel. So when Jesus arrives on the scene in the New Testament and is called the son of God, what they're primarily saying when they say son of God is that he's like Israel. He's part of God's people. He's the faithful son. So we have God's children. But what we see from this is that God's children have become rebellious. They've turned their backs on God, if you like. So here we have rebellious. We're going to put this over here. Uh, this is the terrible present table over here. God's children have become rebellious. And he quotes this thing about animals. Uh, so a donkey knows its owner, an ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's crib. Um, really to say animals are faithful. They're, they're dumb, but they're faithful. When you get in from work, who greets you, the dog or the children? It's the dog because they're faithful. They don't forget you. But my children have forgotten me. So God, in, in saying this, isn't just saying, aren't they terrible? But he's, he's saying, this is how I feel. My heart breaks. And, and often when you read the Old Testament and the prophetic books, you get insights into the heart of God that make him look quite vulnerable. And it makes you kind of go, is he really presenting himself as that vulnerable? Someone who's been rejected by, uh, by their children. And he does that time and time again. And it's not just that his children have rejected him. They've forgotten him. Even animals remember their owners, but my children have forgotten me, God says. 
Again, many of us have loved people or known people who've been loved who suffer from dementia and how horrible a disease that is. And just, I remember seeing the pain on my dad's face as his mum just slowly started forgetting who he was. That's what God's saying his children have done to him. They've forgotten him. It's painful. Chapter 4. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. These people are heavy with sin. Like when you come in from the rain and your clothes are just dripping, just heavy, way down. That's what he's saying. My people are like. They're heavy with sin. And God's people are used often as an example of humanity as a whole. So you can put the parallels from here, uh, from God's people to humanity as a whole, that from God's perspective, all of us are sin sick. All of us are dripping with iniquity. All of us are sin sick. That we, this is the present that we live in. We, we're children of people who are sinners, but we're also sinners ourselves. What that means is we are the product of, yes, our parents and their rebellion against God, their nature, but also individually. My predisposition is to disobey God and to worship self. I'm sin sick. That's what he's saying. Let's carry on reading. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. (laughs) I don't know. Like a besieged city. If you've seen any of the news recently and you've seen the way the terrorists are uh, are leaving waste cities in Nigeria, you'll, you'll understand something of what this word desolate means. This is the state of the nation. They've been overrun by foreign rulers. They are desolate, sin-sick, desperate, rebellious. It's good news, isn't it? You're glad you came to church today. If the Lord of hosts, verse 9, had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. They're towns that God destroyed in the Old Testament. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's saying, you are the most rebellious people on the planet. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense, is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It's the state of the nation. 
And the, irony thing, the, the ironic thing here is that God's saying no more of these sacrifices, and yet he's the one that set up the sacrificial system in the first place. What he's saying is all of this pretense at religion, all of this pretense at morality, and going through the motions of killing animals to try to be atoned for sin, it's just a pretense, and it's making me sick, he says. A friend of mine, whenever we're in conversation, and then the conversation turns um, slightly gruesome or, um, uh, or vulgar, he starts to go into shutdown mode and he puts his fingers in his eyes and on his nose and in his ears, basically trying to cover every source of information that noise and sound can come into his brain and just starts doing this and just because he wants to shut down and we call it, oh, Andrew's going into shutdown, we say. But almost, not in a childish way, but that's what God's saying here. I can't look at you. I don't want to hear what's going on. Just enough, enough. That's the state of his people's sin. It's horrible. Okay, we're going to jump a bit to verse 23 in Isaiah 1. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. What he's saying is their sin is so bad now. He can't endure it. The leaders have become corrupt. The people are corrupt. The innocent are trodden on. It's just wickedness that is rampant. They are dirty with sin. And there's a comprehensive failure. They've got a big F on their scorecard from God. And their failure is, is obvious to all. Rather like when you go out walking and you come back with, with dog mess on your shoe. And you don't realize it until you get in the house. And you, you put your shoes off in the lounge. And then suddenly there's a... There's a smell that fills the house. And you think, that's revolting. I didn't know I had it, but I brought it in. It's like the failure is everyone knows about it. Or rotten milk. This is another one. Present reality of life under the sun. How horrible milk is when it turns. A few months ago, I spilt some in our car and just left it. Because I thought, oh, it's just a little bit of milk. A few days went by. There's a smell in our car. It's not nice. Within a week, it was horrible. Within... A month, I hadn't cleaned it up all right. Within a month, people would get into our car and I'd have to say, I'm really sorry. I don't know what that smell is. I'm really sorry. And I had to scrub the seats and get rid of this filth and do all I can to, to clean the car. I emptied a bucket of Febreze onto the seat and did everything I could. And it took, it took months to get rid of it. So it was horrible. The smell filled it. It was obvious to all, Jez is dirty. <laughs> he doesn't clean and that's, that's what he's saying has happened to, to his people, how filthy they are. There's, and he goes on to say the trouble with the nation is that there's, there's no bravery anymore. Um, so that's the line which was, uh, there's no elderly left. They've all been destroyed or not, for, not remembered anymore, which is a, a tragic curse on a country when the memory of the past is erased. It's a horrible state of affairs. And if you've, if you've lived, well, what do we do when stuff gets that bad? What do we do when things break that bad that we can't repair them? Like last week, my, my son Zach threw something at our telly, 37-inch, 500-pound, beautiful Panasonic telly, and broke it. What do I do? I threw him out in the trash. I said, that's it, Zach. You don't live with us. I had to throw my telly out. 
What do we do when things are that dirty? Like, so, so babies' nappies like, and, and vests that children soil and it just explodes. This is a clean one, but it's an example. What do you do? There's so many times in our babies' lives when they've done something hideous and it explodes everything. I've got no choice. I've just got to throw it out. I can't repair it. It's so dirty. And for God, as people, you go on to read, and the trouble is, in the country, because of their sin, there's, there's no water, there's no food, there's starvation. It's a terrible present, a comprehensive failure. And all of us know what life under the sun looks like in that setting. We know what it is to be dirty and suffer pain and heartache. Uh, and what do we do when someone breaks our heart and, uh, and deceives us or friends let us down and disappoint us? So often you think the easiest thing to do is to just get rid of you. I, just, I need to move on. I've had my heart broken so many times by you. I can't keep accepting you back. Or I trusted you and you betrayed my trust. What do we do Often we just think there's no other choice. I've got, to re- I've got to get a break from this. I've got to move on. But what God does in the book of Isaiah is it's fascinating. He jumps from the terrible present to the glorious hope within a few verses, almost in the, in the same breath. So let's carry on reading. This is chapter 2, a glorious hope. The word of Isaiah came to the son, the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw during Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In in, in mythology, mountains were the places that gods lived. In history, Mount Zion was the place that God met with Moses and had this face-to-face conversation. God gave him the, the law. And so he's saying the mountain that God lives on is no longer, and he says, uh, it talks about the house of the Lord. So not the temple of the Lord, but the house is going to be on earth. God's going to live with his people and all the nations shall flow to it. Verse 3. Many people shall say, come and, come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that he, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And this is a famous verse. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What he's saying is there is a, there is a future coming. In light of all this, there is a future coming. And you'd expect him to say, where God's going to destroy everything. But he says there's a future coming where justice will reign, where peace will go over all the earth, where they will beat their, their pruning, their swords into trowels and garden and become gardeners. And instruments of war will become now instruments of peace and prosperity. Such is the future God jumps to. All right, let's move on to chapter 4. Verse 1, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. 
Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Well done for staying with me through the reading. There's coming a day where God will be the defender of his people, where God will rescue them. God will provide for them. It says God will wipe away. He will cleanse them. And the thing we learn about God today, the thing we're, we're focusing on now is that God is the God who cleanses us. God is the God who cleanses his people. Where we throw away, God cleanses. And there's this beautiful image of what that looks like with peace and prosperity and wholeness. It's that image when you, when you go to a, a hotel and you stay the night and they have these perfectly crisp white sheets that's just clean and, and spotless, aren't they? Like, you smell it like, oh, I could just lie down in this forever. It's just so clean. Or, or fresh laundry when it's, oh, it just comes out of the wash and it smells so good with fabric softener. And it, it just, it's the epitome of freshness and cleanliness. And it stands in stark contrast to moldy milk and, and dog's mess on our shoes. And that's the image that he's creating. So you have the terrible present and the glorious hope. But in, in my experience is that if you leave a garden long enough, it grows weeds. It doesn't eventually become, I don't know, the Chelsea Flower Show. It requires gardening. It requires work. And so what, what's going on in Isaiah's mind here? How does Isaiah manage to jump from one to the other and say, this is going to happen. I know things are bad, but this is going to happen. It's because of this truth that God is the God who cleanses us. So I have this. See, this is the bridge, if you like. This is the bridge from the terrible present to the glorious hope is that the God of the whole earth, our God, is the God who cleanses us, who makes us clean. And you'll see this a lot through the Old Testament and through the prophets especially, that the bridge from there to there, the bridge from that time in history to present day is that God doesn't change. He's still the same. And he's a God who makes us clean which is good news for those of us, if you're like me, who are aware of my shortcomings and failures and sin. If you've been sinned against and know the, the, the shame that you can experience, or if you find yourself in a cycle of sin, confess, sin, confess, I can't change my behavior, I'll say I'll do this and I won't, I'll say I'll eat healthily and I can't, I'll say I'll, do, I'll get fit, I break my own rules. If you're aware that you're a sinner like I am, this is good news, because God is the God who makes us clean. So we have the real, the ideal, and the bridge, the God who makes us clean. In our old house, uh, we lived in a, uh, an end of terrace, Victorian terrace house. And when we first moved in, the patio was old and had moss and mold and skank in between the paving slabs. It was just horrible. It just looked like a, a Victorian end of terrace patio that hadn't been cleaned since it was built. It wasn't nice. And so I borrowed a, a power hose from my brother and spent a couple of days cleaning the... And, and bit by bit, as I got this hose and just went over the grime and the filth and it started to move, you saw the patio emerge from underneath all this grime and it, and it transformed my Victorian end of terrace slime into a, a Tuscany Italian veranda in summertime. At least it did in my mind. <laughs> I was still in Eastbourne, where you live, but... Because that's what jet cleaning can do. It can change filth and make it look clean again. 
I don't know if you've ever been so dirty that you need several washes to get yourself clean. A lot of manual laborers or plasterers know this. You come home from work and you have to get changed before you get in the house because you're so filthy. And then when you're in the house, you have to go and have a shower because you're so filthy still. And, and after having a shower, you have to get changed in the fresh clothes. And then at the end of the day, you still have to have another shower because you're still filthy because dirt gets everywhere. Life can be a lot like that. The sin that people do to us or the sin that we commit, the mistakes that we make just ends up us leaving quite filthy. But God is a God who can make us clean. No matter how wide the gulf between your ideal and your real, what's really going on, God is the God who can make us clean. That is good news, no matter how wide the gulf. See, we all start with a vision of how we want our life to turn out, but we get dirty, we make mistakes. The good news is where others may throw it away, God cleans it up and puts it on display. Or as one friend of mine says, God's ability to repair and clean is greater than your ability to mess it up. God's ability to repair and clean is greater than your ability to mess it up and make mistakes. And time and again, I hear people when they become Christians say words to that effect, don't they? I feel clean. I feel like I've had a a wash. I know when I first became a Christian, my friends and family started saying, Jez has been brainwashed. And I said, it's true, I have. My brain's had a very good wash. I feel so clean. (laughs) My thoughts are so much different now. I feel happier and healthier. But God's cleansing works like this. I didn't read these verses, but we're going to jump back. In Isaiah chapter 1. You see, we spent a lot of time reasoning and using logic during the Big Objections series, and we got us so far. But let's look at God's reasoning power. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, let's be honest, your sins are like scarlet. They're blood red. They're filthy. You make mistakes. You make promises you can't keep. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God cleanses us by giving us a whole new nature. He doesn't just clean us up. He gives us a whole new nature. Charles Spurgeon, um, a famous preacher from the Victorian times, he said that the, the difference that takes place in the life of a Christian from the real to the ideal or when, before God cleans you up and afterwards is the difference of a pig being transformed into a glorious emperor of Rome. A pig who's so used to wallowing in the muck and filth of life and entertaining all the things that do us harm, suddenly being placed as an emperor in Rome with authority and glory and honor and respect. So God gives us a new nature, but more than that. Next slide, in chapter, two, in cha- chapter 1 at the end, again, I didn't read this because I was saving it for now, but this is beautiful. Verse 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. If you remember, God called his faithful city a whore. He said, you were a faithful city, but now you're whoring after other gods and sleeping around He says, I'm going to give you a new reputation, a reputation that is a faithful city. Gives us a new identity and a new reputation. That's what the cleansing jet spray of God does for us. Jesus picks up that image in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking to his followers and he says, you are a city set on a hill. You are the light of the earth, he tells them. And they look around going, really? We're not that impressive. We're not that impressed, but no, you are a city. God gives you a reputation. 
Back to this read-only document. If God is the God of the whole earth, if God is the God who created you, then he has permission to change your nature. He has permission to change your reputation. You say, oh, I, don't dis- I don't agree with you, God. I'm, I'm dirty. No, I've changed that. I've spoken forgiveness. I've spoken life. And often when, when you speak to people who are, who are wrestling with this, we, they'll say, oh, please pray for me. I'm, like, don't pr- I'm not going to pray for you. Just believe what God says. God says you have a new identity. God says you have a new reputation. You're in Christ now. You've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. You've been made whole. That is glorious. And Jesus picks up this thing about, about God being the cleansing God as well. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 40, it should have appeared behind me, he comes to a leper who's ceremonially unclean and diseased in his skin. And it says this, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. I don't know if you've ever reached that point, but often we need to reach that point before we're really able to receive the cleansing of God. Jesus, filled with compassion, reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. That's what Jesus does. In John 15, again, he's talking to his disciples and he says this to them, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I'll also remain in you. And in Ephesians 5, talking about marriage, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And he's saying in the same way that Jesus has cleansed the church, the people in the church, so you husbands also ought to love your wives in that same kind of cleansing-like way. You ought to love them. I was talking to um, a friend of mine who's doing impact. He's uh, from Romania, grew up in a very poor part of Romania, uh, grew up in a very difficult home life. His dad was, is, an, is an abusive alcoholic. He said that growing up, he listened most days to the sounds of his mum being beaten by his dad. It was horrible. As a result of that, he became a very angry, aggressive young man and got into a lot of trouble himself, in and out of trouble with the police, pursued by them. Uh, He says now a lot of his friends are in prison. Some of them have been killed. Because of what was done by him, he took on the filth and the dirt and the anger of his childhood until he met God. Until he experienced the cleansing of Jesus who washed him white as snow, gave him a new reputation, and he changed. And now to meet him is a very joyful, friendly, warm young man. And he would be the first to say that he's not finished. Like What happens to us and what we experience doesn't get erased. But he says that now I know I'm, I'm loved and I'm accepted by God. I want us to uh, look at a, a two-minute video clip together just before we close that really uh, is an illustration given by a preacher in America that he just does excellently, and I think it's a very powerful clip worth watching. Uh, But again, it's to make this point that you may feel dirty, you may feel like this is the real, but the God who makes you clean loves you and wants you and is able to offer you this glorious hope. So let's have a look at this video. Jesus wants the rose. Uh, God is the God who makes us clean. Regardless of the filth that we may feel we've wallowed in, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants you. Jesus loves you. Jesus makes you clean. And the way that he does that, the way that Jesus did that, was that, I mean, Jesus is God incarnate. He's God, the creator of everything, who existed before time began 
who's never lacked anything, who's never done anything wrong, who's never experienced any kind of dirt or filth or sin or temptation or wickedness. He's never experienced that. But yet the way he did it was that he became a man and he allowed himself to be arrested, falsely tried, handed over to his persecutors. He, was al- he allowed himself to be tortured by Romans. Um, uh, and then he carried uh, his cross to the place of his own crucifixion. He allowed himself to have nails driven through his forearms and through his shins. He allowed himself to be strung up outside of the city, in all likelihood naked, ashamed, shamed, publicly dishonored in front of people. People walked past him on the cross and went, God is judging you. God is cursing you. They wagged their heads. They scoffed. They mocked him. They insulted. He allowed that so that he could clean us up, so that he could make us clean, so that he could remove our sin and our filth and our shame. He could remove it on the cross. As the guy on the video said, he made him who never knew sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we could be cleaned by Him. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that we worship. That's why we come every week and celebrate. It's because you are clean because of Jesus. And if you're not yet, you can be simply by confessing my sin and asking that what Jesus did on the cross would count for me. And then God washes you clean. And you may... You may feel like, yeah, but I still live in, in the muck and the mire. I still wallow in the sin. It doesn't matter. You're an emperor of Rome now. An emperor of Rome could go and play with the filth. He could do. And often we do because we're used to that. I remember what it was like to be a, a pig and to roll around in muck and enjoy sin. I remember what it was like. But the reality is now I'm an emperor of Rome. Now I've been changed. Now I'm in Christ. Now I've been forgiven. Now I've been cleaned. And that's the glorious truth of the gospel. And that's the wonderful introduction to the book of Isaiah. These first four chapters has to offer that. Though there is a terrible present, there is a glorious hope because God is the God who makes us clean. We're going to end this morning by uh, worshipping Jesus and breaking bread, remembering again his death on the cross for our sin in our place that we could become clean. And we're going to use this breaking of bread as a chance for those of us who are Christians to kind of tangibly pick something up again and go, I remember, I'm clean. I may feel dirty, but I'm clean. And if you're not a Christian, you can use the breaking of bread as your way of saying, God, I want to be clean. Please forgive me. We normally say that breaking your bread, this is something for Christians. So if you're not a believer, you can opt this one out. That's fine. But if you aren't a Christian today, if you'd like to become one, you can do that. You can pick up the bread, the juice, and use it as your way of remembering Jesus' death on the cross for you and receive forgiveness in place of sin. Father, thank you for this glorious gospel. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you that you want the rose. Thank you that you went after us. You sought us out. I pray, God, as we celebrate your death on the cross, that you would, God, again, just remind us of how clean we are now in you.